Um, this morning is going to be an interesting morning. I'm going to preface this whole thing with that. So we're jumping into the book of Acts this morning, and have real, I've really been just feeling just kind of a stirring in my own soul. And, um, you know, it's awesome that we get to partake in all these baptisms, and it's neat to see what God's doing uh, in through his church. But I sort of had this thought this last week. I was, uh, about a month ago, I was reading through the Psalms, and um, there's a passage in Psalm 143, verse 6, and it says, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And I had read that, that, that psalm, and then I like kind of copy-pasted that psalm into some notes and, 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 and kind of went on. And this last week, I was actually on a plane, and I was like going through some of the notes and went back to the psalm and was... It, it kind of struck me this time a little deeper, and what I kept thinking to myself was like, um, there are often seasons in my life where I, my soul feels like a parched land, and it feels dry, and I know I need something, and I don't always know what that something is or how to get it, but man, do we turn to a lot of different things in this world to try to quench that thirst, to try to find what it is that parched land needs without turning to Christ himself. And, and yet, I also feel like there's this really neat stirring that the Spirit is doing. And I don't think it's just like within our church. I think it's in his church globally because what we see is this world that's just a mess. Um, and, and right now, the church can respond in one of two ways, right? The church can either respond, one, by just running, not dealing with it, being ignorant to the fact that this world is a mess and it desperately needs Jesus and we're sort of the answer that he's placed on this earth to bring life and his gospel to those who need it, to the parched, dry land. And so we can run from it or we can respond by saying like, you know, send me. Like, I'll step in, Lord. Like, quench this parched land so that this parched land can be a blessing to the other parts of the land. And I have no idea where you guys are at in your life this morning, but before we even hop into this this morning, I'm just like, come Lord Jesus, come. Like if, if we're playing games and we're here to just like do church and go through motions, like may we just leave because there's really no point to any of this if it's really not because we want to be immersed in the spirit and in the presence of Jesus. And so I want to pray for us this morning, and, and I'm going to start out by just saying, take 30 seconds in silence, examine your heart this morning, and, and then I'll, I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. So let's just take, take a second. Jesus, I'm so grateful that this morning, though I stand up here and have no idea the state of the hearts in this room and the lives in this room, I, you do. You, in fact, see them. You, in fact, know everything about them. And uh, Jesus, we invite you, by way of your spirit, to have your way in this place this morning. We just surrender this time to you, God. I pray that um, 
There'd be nothing part of the service that isn't just immersed in you, God, that it would be all about you and all for you. And even as we sang that song, it is all about Jesus, Lord. Our whole lives, it's all about Jesus. And so this morning we invite you here, Holy Spirit, to have your way, to move as you wish in our midst. We surrender our lives to you. We, we know that we are a parched land, that our souls yearn to be filled, that our souls yearn to be quenched. And I pray that this morning we would find that in you, Jesus. We would find that in you. Would you have your way with us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start this, this six-week series just in the beginning of the book of Acts, so the first two chapters of Acts. And the hope really from the beginning was for you to sort of follow the storyline as we come out of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and we ended with Jesus' death and with Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the question then there is, what, what happened next? Like what happened after Jesus' resurrection? And as you open up to the book of Acts, as we start this new book this morning, it's always important for us to ask a couple like introductory questions, right? Like who's the author of this book? Who are the intended readers? What's the message that this book is sending? And so I want to look at those questions briefly. So the first part of this morning is really, we're going to get into some just informational pieces. I want you to understand who wrote this book, why he wrote the book, who he wrote the book to, before we kind of dive into some, uh, what I would say are, are some more critical aspects of like, what does this mean for you and I today? And so who's the author of this book? Uh, turn to Acts chapter 1. And let's read Acts 1, 1 through 5. You guys can say a word when you get there. Wow, you're so fast. Amazing. Okay. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had commands through this Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's where we find ourselves. Um, the, the first verse gives us this clue into who the is, right? The author, the author says of this book, in the first book, O Theophilus, how he starts it out. So this book is sort of part two of this series. There's, there, there's one other place where we see this name Theophilus used, and it's in the Gospel of, of Luke. So this must have been a continuation of Luke's Gospel. So you have Luke's Gospel, where we wrapped up last week, and then you have the book of Acts. And church history and just simple good reason the author of the book of Acts is the same author as the book of Luke, Luke himself. And there's three references in the New Testament which give us some insight into Luke. Colossians 4, 11, Philemon 24, 2 Timothy 4, 11. All of these references are from the Apostle Paul's standpoint, and they teach us a number of things about this man, Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. And this is significant because oftentimes when it comes to the Christian faith, people think that Christians are just straight up stupid. Like, you're just dumb people. You're naive. You just jump into things. People think that if Christians just had more information and we were 
are educated that we could actually educate the faith out of them, right? Or, uh, and um, actually, if you look in the, the history of the church, many very well-educated people have been believers. And if we look at Luke himself, he's one of these people. He was a doctor. He wrote this book with a doctor's precision, like from a doctor's mind. And we're told in several places in Luke, when he wrote about people that, that were demon-possessed, he uses this word convulsions. It's, thank you. There we go. He uses this word convulsions. And um, he, he uses this word to describe what's happening with these people that are demon-possessed. And so he uses this medical term in the Greek for convulsions, whereas if you look through the other gospel writers, Talking of these same stories, they use different ways to describe the, what it is they saw. So Luke brings this doctor's perspective. And so over in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. And so Luke sort of emphasizes that he put this orderly account together that he researched, that he investigated everything. And so this book isn't just some piece of fiction that some guy named Luke made up. This is actually an authentically researched account of the early church. The other thing we learn about Luke is that he was one of the Apostle Paul's most trusted and loyal friends, right? In, in 2 Timothy 4.11, right at the end of his life, Paul says that Luke alone is with me. And that's significant because the, the book of Acts is really about Paul. Like the first part of the book of Acts is Peter, and then the second part of the book of Acts is Paul. And it's interesting that in, in Acts 16, verse 11, there's this sort of change in the narrative where he starts to use these personal pronouns. And, and so he uses we, and he uses, starts to use us, which means that Luke was actually an eyewitness of these events, that he was actually with Paul in some of these instances. And so this just isn't some made-up fictional fairy tale, but it's something that Luke, this doctor, this physician, wrote in a very thought-out, orderly, and researched way. So who's the reader of the book? Look at verse 1 with me. And I know this is informational, but I want you guys to see this setup. Verse 1, Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So we know that the, the reader of the book, the intended recipient of this is Theophilus. So who's Theophilus? Some commentators would say that Theophilus was this Roman governor or some Roman official, and that Luke was writing the book of um, Luke and Acts as sort of an apology, right? Meaning he was writing these books as a defense of his Christian faith for this Roman official, Theophilus. And so as you read through the book of Luke and Acts, you see that Luke goes to really great extremes to show how Paul's innocent of all charges and that Christianity isn't just some little cult group, but rather it's this amazing movement of God by his spirit. And I think this is really significant because if you're here today for the very first time and you're sort of checking out Christianity, uh, I want you to know this morning, this book is sort of for you. You see, Christianity isn't the sort of faith where we hide everything away and we don't let people see it because we're afraid of it. It's not like Scientology, right? Christianity, right from the beginning, says, here's our truth claims. Like, go ahead and investigate them for yourself and go see if these things are true. And that's what Luke does for us in the book of Acts. He investigates them. He, he's writing his account, the truth. 
Other people suggest that this, that this name Theophilus is actually these two Greek words that are coming together. The first one being Theos, which anybody know what Theos means? God, right? Good job. The first one being Theos. Uh, the second one being Phyllis or Phileo, which, which means love in the Greek. Phileo is love. And so some people would say that it's this sort of code word name, meaning like lover of God when you put them together or friend of God. So some say that Theophilus wasn't actually an individual or person, but it was a book written to the friends of God, the, the lovers of God. And so we see that the, the writer Luke um, that he's writing to this recipient, Theophilus, that's either an individual or it's us, like the lovers of God. But if you look at the message of this book, like what is the book of Acts all about? Like you look back at verse one again and you read this in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I want you to notice this. He says in my former book, like the book of the Gospel of Luke, I taught about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That was, that was the objective behind the book of Luke. And so what's sort of the implication that he's giving for the book of Acts? The implication is that this book is going to be all about what Jesus continues to do. That's what he began to do. This is what he continues to do and teach. And this is really interesting because in this next paragraph, Jesus actually ascends up into heaven. And the rest of the book is about the apostles. And so how can this book be about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach when Jesus actually ascends and he's gone and Jesus is in heaven? Well, in Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks, this amazing event happens, right? The day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was sent. And two things happened when the Holy Spirit came. One, people were indwelled by the Spirit. Two, Jesus sort of receives a, a new body, the church. And so what is the church? The, the church really is the continuing presence of Jesus in the world. That's what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. The church continues the work of Jesus in our world today. Uh, if you look at my finger right now, and I can like move my finger around. You guys see my finger? This massive finger, right? Why can I move my finger like this? Because my finger has life in it, doesn't it? There's life in this finger that allows me the opportunity to move it around like that. It's actually connected to my body. And so I can move my finger around because my finger is connected to my body. Life flows from my body to my finger and I can actually move this finger. But if I invited Kyle up here this morning to just chop my finger off, I know you've been waiting for this opportunity, man. Let's just do it with the guitar. If I invited Kyle up here to chop my finger off this morning, it actually would separate my finger from my body, from its source of life, wouldn't it? It would no longer have life flowing through it, but in fact, my finger would be dead. And the other reason that my finger can do this is because my head is actually telling my finger what to do. And likewise, the, the, the Bible references Jesus as the head of the church, the head of his body. He directs his body. Jesus directs his people. And so the church is the continued presence of God in our world today. And when you think about this, I, I think we sort of need a rediscovery of what the church is, to be honest. 
We, we tend to think so often that the church is this building, that the church is this place that we're in. But might I remind us this morning that the church is not a building. This here is not the church. This is a gathering of the church in this shed of sorts. But you're the church, not a building. And so, so often we, we tend to think that the church is a service. And, and honestly, if we view the church as a service, we tend to buy into this whole concept of consumerism, right? That I come to church to get certain things from church. Church is like a grocery store. So I come to it because it's going to give me something this morning. And if the church service isn't giving me those things, then I'll go find a church service that will give me those things. And so I will hop around and find the place that will give me the things that I want. So we treat church like a vending machine. Jesus doesn't refer to the church anything like that. He refers to you as the church, you as the body of Christ. But the church, again, is the body of Christ. It's the presence of Christ in the world. And so the church also is not about professionals. Might I remind us this morning, like we can tend to think that the church is all about having really highly equipped and talented and gifted pastors. People that can communicate well and lead worship well and put on the great show for us so we can come and we can partake in it. I'm so grateful for the staff we have at our church, aren't you? Like, they're amazing people. Yeah, give them a hand. They do an amazing job. But the role of a pastor is to equip the people for the work of ministry. That, that's the role of a pastor to equip the people for the works of service. And in the book of Acts, what you see is this amazing dynamic like movement of people. In fact, the two times where the church really grows, where it really steps out in faith, it's not the apostles that are doing it in the book of Acts. It's not the paid professionals with, 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 the, um, with the clout and, and the, the, the names. In Acts chapter eight, when the church expands into Judea and into Samaria, it's just average people taking the gospel and telling people about Jesus. And that's the reason why the gospel spreads down into Samaria. And then I love this. I was actually reading this this morning in Acts chapter 11. Like at the founding of the church in Antioch, the very first time that the gospel moved past the language barrier and goes into the Greeks in Acts chapter 11, it says that unnamed Christians went to the city of Antioch and they started sharing the gospel with the Hellenists, with the Greeks. And it says, that, it says this, the hand of the Lord was with them and they saw many people come to Christ. The unnamed, the, the hand of the Lord was with them and they saw many people come to Christ. You don't see any names given for the people that did that work. And so the, the church at Antioch, this amazing church that becomes the sending church for the rest of the book of Acts, it was founded by unnamed people who just took the gospel with them wherever they went. Like, check out that church planning strategy right there, right? That's amazing. You go up to Rathdrum, you take the gospel with you, there's droves of people that come to know Jesus, and then people go, okay, well, we better send you a pastor to help care for the people up there, right? It's the craziest, most backwards church planting strategy that exists. 
And it's because you see that the church is this dynamic people movement, and they're indwelled by the Spirit of God. That's what's empowering. That's what's giving them life. Jesus is the head. His Spirit is giving life to the finger, and they are doing the work in the Spirit's power. They're taking the gospel forward. And so you have these amazing summaries in the book of Acts about the gospel spreading. Acts 6-7, the word of God spread. Acts 9.31, meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was built up, living in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Acts 12.24, the word of God continued to advance. Acts 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in faith and, faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord grew mighty and it prevailed. Is that not crazy? So in the book of Acts, it's not so much about the growth of the church, it's actually the growth of the gospel. It was the gospel going forward. It's the gospel going forward into the world, and it's prevailing throughout the world through, through people that are indwelled by the Spirit of God taking this message forward. The church, we know, does have some organizational elements to it. And you read about those later on in the book of Acts. Like Acts 6, they appoint deacons to serve in the church. They need some leadership. Acts 14, Paul appoints elders for the church. But primarily, the church is this people movement, again, indwelled by the Spirit, taking the gospel everywhere they go. And it's interesting when you, when you read modern biographies of successful church pastors. Does anybody in here read that? Or is it just pastors that read that junk, right? <laughs> it's pastors that read the modern biographies of pastors to get strategies, to figure out methods and what's worked for them. And you read about how these pastors have figured a method out. There's something that they've solved that's worked. If you get small groups, the church will grow. If you have lights and smoke and like, loud worship music, if you got all these things, like that, there's something about that, people, it'll attract people and that, that, that'll make it grow. And I'm not saying that we can't learn from other people and experience, experiment with different methods, but actually when you read the book of Acts, it's really surprising what you find. Like you find things happening that only the Spirit does. That can only be justified by the Holy Spirit. You, they, they can't be explained by natural causes. Like, how can you explain tongues of fire coming and resting upon people's heads? That, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't make it into the modern church pastor's biography, you know? What you do is you wait, and when the tongues of fire rest upon people's heads, the church is going to boom. You know what I mean? Like, people would be like, ah, oh, that's stinking weird. But that isn't something that you and I conjure up. Like, we can't do that. In Acts chapter 9, God converts the, the, like, the biggest persecutor of the church, the Apostle Paul. And he changes him, he, he transforms him into the greatest missionary that's ever lived. Can we do that? No, it's the Spirit of God that does that work. I can't do that. You see, the, the book of Acts puts us in this position where we have to get literally down on our knees and say, God, we need you to work in remarkable and extraordinary ways while we be faithful. We need you to do the work by your spirit, Jesus. We need you to do it. Now, Acts 1.8, 
Um, it's often been pointed out as sort of the structure for the book of Acts, right? It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, earth, the earth, yeah. And in the book of Acts, it sort of follows the structure, right? The, the gospel goes first to Jerusalem, then it goes to Judea, and then it goes to Samaria, and then it goes out to the ends of the earth. And at the end of the book of Acts, you see that the book of Acts finishes in Acts chapter 28 with Paul in prison in Rome, and it's really fascinating. Like it, it ends really abruptly with Paul in Rome, and you're reading it, and you're like, what's the rest of the story? Like, why does it end here? Some people have said, well, you know, that's just where Luke had written up to, and he didn't have anything more to write. Some actually think that, that what Luke is doing is actually pretty powerful, that he's actually trying to invite you and I into Acts chapter 29. That we're being invited into this movement of God's spirit where we take the gospel, we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The question this morning is like, will you step into that? Will you step into it? Will you take the gospel everywhere you go? Will you step out and be one of his witnesses? This is what the book of Acts is inviting us into. But what is it that actually ignites our hearts? And there, there's two themes that, that sort of run through this book. The first is, you see in verse 3, he says this, in, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day, and that's actually kind of a significant moment, like we often, I said this last week, we often don't give the ascension of Jesus enough significance. But he says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, and here's verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This, this phrase, 40, 40 days, like it's a significant number, right? 40 days in the wilderness for the, the people of Israel. 40 days, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And so here Luke is saying that there was 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And what Jesus did in those 40 days, what he chose to do in that 40-day window, is he taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. He, he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. So let me ask you a question this morning. How many proofs do you need? Right? If Jesus was to appear before you in physical form this morning, would you believe? How come Jesus had to give many convincing proofs? And then you read about them in the Gospels. Jesus shows up on occasion and he says to Thomas, like, have a look at my side and have a look at my hands, right? He eats fish with them. He has breakfast with them. We talked about it over the last couple of weeks. Why does he need to give them these many convincing proofs? Because I really think the first thing that sort of ignites our hearts is being absolutely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe that he's alive today? What prompted these men to go out on this mission and to literally lay down their lives for Jesus? They were convinced that he was not dead. 
They were convinced that he was alive. And, and to be convinced of something, like for your faith to be strengthened, we need evidence. And so Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. It's actually really fascinating. Um, yesterday I went through each one of the apostles' sermons in the book of Acts. And do you know that there was, uh, that there's this, this emphasis in their preaching on the resurrection of Jesus in every instance? Like, I don't think I do enough to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And yet that was the critical thing for them. That he's alive, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Francis Chan said, said this, he said, are you living your life in the reality of the resurrection? Can your life only be explained by the fact that Jesus is alive? And so the, the first point at which our hearts will be ignited for this mission is when we're thoroughly convinced of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, but that Jesus rose again that he's resurrected. And it doesn't matter if people reject us. It doesn't matter if people take our lives. It doesn't matter because Jesus is alive. We'll actually live with him in the kingdom of God. The reality of the resurrection is legit. And still that's not enough. The, the second thing that ignites our hearts is this promise of the Father. You look at verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. If you turn your Bible like back to Luke 24, where we were last week, Luke records a story at the end of his gospel account. Again, we read it last week. Um, Jesus appeared to his disciples. He, he'd given them this convincing proof that he was alive and, and that he, he makes this barbecue fish, you know, breakfast for them. And then in verses 45 through 49, it says, then he opened their minds to the understanding of the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's what he tells them. So why was it that they needed this power from on high? Well, it's because at the crucifixion of Jesus, they're scared out of their minds. Even though Peter boldly says, Jesus, though others will deny you, I will never do that, right? And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny knowing me three times. And so at this point, Peter had no courage. Like, he's sort of blown his witness. And so Jesus says, you need to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. You'll be clothed from power on high. You'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes, and they're baptized by the Spirit. And the same Peter, who couldn't even stand up in front of the slave girl and profess to know Christ, 
stands up in front of a massive crowd, declares the resurrection of Jesus, and 3,000 people give their lives to Christ. Is that not crazy? The same goofball, right? Like, all of a sudden, he's like taking it seriously. It's, it's not enough for us to just be convinced of this, of the reality of the resurrection. You actually need the power of God. Now, I grew up in Pentecostal roots. I went to an Assemblies of God Bible College. Like, I, I grew up around Charismania, right? And growing up in that sphere, going to Bible college in that sphere, um, when we would read this verse, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they would teach that, that this was sort of setting up this two-stage experience for us, right? That, that you come to Jesus, and then you wait, and then later on you receive this second blessing, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that baptism of the Holy Spirit is actually evidenced by the speaking in tongues. And then you're clothed on power from on high. But I would say that when you look at the rest of the New Testament, you find that Paul uses almost the exact same phrase that he uses in verse 5 in the Greek. He uses it over again in 1 Corinthians 12. And he talks about us being baptized by the Spirit into one body, the church. And so I don't think it's this two-tiered system. I always really struggled with that. But, but I think that what the Scriptures teach is that when you receive Christ... You, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're immersed in the Spirit. But yet, even though these believers were baptized in the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, later on, they actually experienced the filling of the Spirit. They were baptized by the Spirit, but then there's this indwelling of the Spirit. They, they, they had to be refilled so that they could stand boldly as Christ's witnesses before thousands of people. My question for you this morning is like, do you need to be refilled or filled by God's Spirit this morning? To be filled by the Spirit doesn't mean that you get any more of the Spirit, but it actually gets, means that the Spirit gets more of you. Like, when I hear the words like, fill me more, I'm like, oh, didn't he already fill us? But how many of you know that it's easy in life for you to form these barricades of sorts. We only, I surrender my life to Jesus. You can have 80% of it, but there's a couple things, Lord, that I'm going to hang on to for myself. Like, you give over your life to the lordship of Jesus. You, you surrender fully to Jesus. You confess your sin. You bring yourself humbly before him and say, God, by faith, I actually want you to have more of me, right? Romans 12 says it like this. I offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. Fill me, Lord, with your presence. I'll sort of end on this. I've been feeling this like stirring in me and I, I can't like pinpoint it. I can't explain it except to say that there's something that God is doing. Something that I, I, I can't explain it other than to say it feels new. And as we were wrapping up the book of Matthew and looking ahead into the book of Acts, I kept thinking, is the Holy Spirit alive and active in our church? Like, is he, is he moving powerfully like we read in this church? Like, I know he's here. I know he's in each one of you. But sometimes it almost feels as though he's here, but not activated, if that makes sense. Like, he's here, but like, it's just not activated. 
And I had this interesting experience about a little over a month ago. Our community group had this, we were all meeting one night, and it was really funny, before group, um, the Frances and us were sitting there talking, and they were talking about like some plumbing that backed up in their house, and Ethan was having to snake his plumbing, and I was like, and so we were, we were kind of laughing about this, because I've had to do that in my house before, and, and he was needing help with it, and so, you know, Josh Raybell went to go get this snake um, so that he could help Ethan, like, get this clog out, and I kid you not, halfway through our group that night, somebody comes out and goes, the plumbing's backed up, the sinks are backing up in your bathroom, and I'm like, what in the world, you know, like, how much of a coincidence is this? What transpired was like me playing plumber for about a week and like ripping apart all of our plumbing, trying to figure out how to get the clogs out. Like I just could not figure out how to get the thing unclogged, right? And it was like phone call after phone call with different people. And then like Ethan's like, oh, I tried this and this worked. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try that. I tried that. Boom, the clog comes out. Like I'm able to get it all, put it all back together. The plumbing works great. And I moved past that experience and I just had this like epiphany moment of like, Am I there spiritually? Like a bit clogged up, for lack of a better way to put it. Like, is that possible, Lord? And you know, I like grew up, and I don't say this facetiously, I grew up in this Pentecostal movement. But I, but I realize at 43, the more life I've lived, I ask the question, like, how do I become hindered? Because I believe that, the, that there's power in the Spirit of God. If somebody were to say, are, are the gifts present today for the church that we read about in the New Testament? I'd say yes. And I told our elders a couple weeks ago, I go, sometimes I feel like a, a, a closet cessationist, you know, like... A cessationist, like using that word cease, is somebody who believes that the Spirit's work in that way ceased after the first century church. So it's no longer, the Spirit's no longer moving like that today. And I said, sometimes I feel like this closet cessationist, right? But what I vocalize with my mouth is I believe that the Spirit is alive, that he's active, that there's power in the Spirit of God. If anybody were to ask me, I would validate that. But the way I live my life is not necessarily in tune with what I vocalize. And I go, why is that? Why, why do I have such a hard time walking in that power? Like, how do I get hindered? And then, honestly, the past couple of weeks, I've been having these thoughts of like, man, you know, I, there's past hurt in my life that has hindered me. There's past experiences where I've watched the gifts be used so horribly so out of line with, with scripture that, 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 that impacts me. I start going like, it's all fake. It, they're, they're, it's manipulation. They're conjuring it all up. Like, my goodness, is there anybody that's doing this in a, like, integrous manner, you know, like, really wanting to adhere, adhere to scripture, but yet the power, let the power of the spirit move through them as we see in the book of Acts. And I go, well, honestly, like, unforgiveness can hinder me. Sin can hinder me. A critical spirit can hinder me. And as I start to mount all these things up, I start to realize, like, man, maybe I have a bigger problem than I thought. 
And so then this last week, I started reading through Revelation 2, and there's the, the letters written to the churches. And, um, you know, John tells, or Jesus tells John to, to write these letters to these seven churches. And um, you read about the, the, the church in Ephesus, right? That they had abandoned their first love. Let me, here, I'll read it to you. Um, Revelation 2. It says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You, you found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently, that you're bearing up for my namesake, that you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, and then what's his advice? Repent. And do the works that you did at first. That's what he says. So then I, I read down a little bit farther, the church of Sardis. He says this, I, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. So when I read these, I think to myself, do I resonate with that? Do you resonate with that? Have you abandoned your first love? Do, does it seem like you've got the reputation of being alive? If you were, somebody would be like, is he a believer? Oh, totally a believer. Yeah, like, like you see God move through him. Oh yeah, that guy's so joyful, like he's got peace. Like the, from an outward perspective, it is though this guy is just like, loves the Lord. Inside he's dead. The power of God is not blowing through him. And I think about our church, and I think like, Maybe our church needs this awakening of sorts. And I'm not trying to get weird on us. But this like deep turning back to Jesus. Because we'll actually never be able to do the work of Jesus without the power of Jesus, right? You can't. It's the power of Jesus that leads us to do the work. Jesus said, without me, you can't do anything. Like if we lose the connection to the head, then we'll have no strength for ministry and for what God is calling us to. This pastor that I read a lot, his name is Mark Sayers. Um, he had really neat insight. He, he was talking about an evening service at his church one night, and he closed by saying, like, we just need to pray. And so he calls the people forward, and they, they spend some time in prayer, and he tells them, like, I don't know what's going on, but there's something that's just not right. Like, the life of God is just not flowing through this church like I think it can, like I think it should. So we need to pray. We need to return to the Lord. And you see, what will ignite us is this reality of the resurrection and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's for us this morning to step into. You don't need to go to some Pentecostal church to experience that. It's here right now. The Spirit is here right now. The Holy Spirit's ministry is literally to exalt Jesus Christ, to, to aid in our affections 
in, in our ability to honor Christ and to cherish Christ and to love Jesus. And what you need to do is get serious with Jesus. We need to surrender afresh to Christ. We need to confess our sins. The things that we've been hiding and say, Lord, use me. Like, give me past these hindrances. I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to be his witness. And as I think ahead in what's to come in the book of Acts, I'm going to tell you what, if, if you're not ready to be tripped out a little bit, don't come for the next six weeks, right? Because there's a lot to, to parse through. But the reality is, I'll stand up before you now and say, I think what we're reading is available for us today. And the discrepancy always becomes us asking the question, like, why do I read about it and it doesn't happen? Well, I'm 43. I've lived a lot of life, been hurt by a lot of people, seen a lot of mishandling of things in the church. Over the years, that builds up a callousness and a hardness in your heart and leads you to a place where you just stop taking the steps of faith that you used to. And I think the Spirit wants to crush those calloused hearts to soften your heart and renew his people. I'm going late. Um, I want to pray for us. And here's what I'm going to ask. We have many people to baptize, so we're just going to like, they're just going to jump off the stage into the baptismal this morning. We're going to do this real quick. You guys know what it is. We're just going to make it happen. Um, Here's what I'm going to ask. In just a couple minutes, Maybe there's three of you in this room. Stand with me. I want you to cry out and I want you to pray. And let's just like keep it brief. But I know there's some of you that the Lord is really speaking to you this morning. Pray. And then I'm going to close us and we're going to sing some worship and then we're going to baptize some people. Amen. So stand with me. If you feel led, just cry out in prayer this morning. And the reality is that there's some of you in this room that resonate with what I'm saying, even with where I'm at. I'm going to tell you, like, I just don't want to play church games. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be a closet cessationist. I don't want to be the guy that's always telling people that this stuff is available for us today, but then living my life as though I don't believe it is. Some of you in this room are in that spot this morning, and I think that Jesus wants to soften your heart. A couple of you want to pray, just go for it. Try out in prayer. And then I'll close us. Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you even as I stand here and I listen to people cry out before you. I thank you that you are alive and you're moving. God, you are right now. You're moving in this room in people's lives in ways that I can't see. And I pray, Jesus, that you continue this work. I pray, God, that as we leave these doors, we wouldn't just sort of leave the message this morning, your word at the door, but we'd walk out of these doors this morning literally seeking you for ways to allow the Spirit to be activated in our lives. And so I pray, Jesus, that you move in miraculous, powerful ways, that what we do read of and hear of in the first century church, we would actually see those days. We would actually see you moving and alive in that way. We would actually see the thousands give their lives to you, Jesus, as we walk in obedience to just share the gospel with those you lead us to. 
And so Jesus, may you bless each person here. May your spirit rest upon them and dwell in them and move through them in ways that they could never even think of or imagine. And Jesus, may we just be so grateful this morning that we serve a God that didn't just leave us hanging. You didn't just ascend back into heaven and then just kind of leave us to just read these historical accounts and try to make sense of it, but you actually provided us with your spirit to come to give us understanding, to give us the power to move in your power, Jesus, the way you would move on this earth if you were standing here this morning. And I pray that we'd walk in obedience and listen to you as as you lead, Jesus. So thank you for this morning, God. I pray for these baptisms coming up. What an amazing, amazing thing we get to witness, God, as these people profess Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and they go down in the waters of baptism, Lord, that the old has gone, and you resurrect them anew. And this morning, we have this amazing picture being painted for us in the baptismal tank, Lord, of what it looks like to be a new creation in you, that you've washed away our sin, you've forgiven us, You've cast it as far as the east is from the west. And in the same power that resurrected you from the dead, Jesus, you've bestowed upon us and within us, you've granted us new life. And may we rejoice in that in Jesus' name. Amen.